Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. And a warm welcome to the Afternoon Show. I'm Bill Arnold, and today when I add the topic of embracing a Christian worldview, which is one of my favorite topics, along with one of my favorite guests, you have a pretty, pretty good start to the day's program. David Wheaton is my guest. He's the host of The Christian Worldview. You can learn more about David at thechristianworldview.org. He's been nice enough to agree to going Embracing a Christian Worldview in a 12-part series. We're already up to part eight. David, welcome back to the show. Bill, it's always good to be with you. Glad to be back with you today. Thank you. Maybe we can start with just uh, going over some of the most important points from last time. Yeah, we're on part eight of this 12-part series. And uh, so last week in, in part seven, just for those who may not have been listening month by month here, we've been going over the, the series of Embracing a Christian Worldview. And there are really, really three main divisions of this. You know, Many months ago, we talked about the foundation of a Christian worldview. And then we then the next stage was the, the fundamentals of a Christian worldview. And now in this last stage, we're talking about the formation and function of a Christian worldview. So last time we, we talked, we were talking about the, the formation part. How do you form a Christian worldview? And we, we said that a Christian worldview is accessible to anyone and everyone. You don't need to be a highly degreed intellectual to have a Christian worldview. And in some ways, that can work against you if you, you, you prioritize the wisdom of the world over the wisdom of the world. And so the, 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 the three divisions here to, to form a Christian worldview is you must be saved, okay? Number two, you must be being sanctified. And number three, you must be surrounded by being in fellowship with other strong believers. So last time, we haven't gotten to the last two yet, but the first one last time we talked about being saved. And this is probably one of the most, or maybe is the most important part of the whole series, because without being genuinely saved or however you want to say it, what the Bible calls it being born again or regenerated or reconciled to God, you cannot form a real Christian worldview. And there's this really powerful passage of Scripture in John chapter 3, and most people will know about this passage, where Nicodemus, who is an elite religious leader, he's learned, he's erudite, he purportedly has a biblical worldview because he knows the Old Testament law up and down. But when he comes to Jesus at night, Bill, he cannot understand the simple spiritual tr truth that Jesus tells him. And the reason is because Nicodemus is not saved yet. He's not born again. He would later in Jesus' life after, after his crucifixion. I think he did come to saving faith. But at this point, he was not a, a true believer. And so he's just, even though he's very religious, he's not regenerated. And so this is why Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus replies by saying, well, wait a second. How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And then Jesus answers by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, it says the same thing again. Unless one is born of water 
and the Spirit, with a capital S, the Holy Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so here you have Nicodemus, Bill, one of the most, again, a religious leader, highly intelligent, learned, trained in religious systems and so forth, who purportedly should have had a biblical worldview, but he didn't. He couldn't even understand the simple thing Christ was saying about, it's not just being born once physically, we must be born again spiritually. And the reason this is the prerequisite, being saved, for having a Christian worldview is that God gives the believer, the new believer, the born-again believer, an all-important gift to guide him or her, help, teach, influence, and that is the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So if you don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit because you're not saved, you won't have a sound understanding of the Bible. You'll have no desire or power to live for God's glory. You'll just misinterpret scripture. There'll be confusion and frustration, and you won't certainly have a sound Christian worldview. So that's one of the main points we discussed last time, that you must be saved. That's the prerequisite to actually have a Christian worldview. And David, Nicodemus not being born again is really a good example of how hard it is for a religious person to come to Christ. Absolutely. It's as it's hard to believe. The gospel is incredibly simple, Bill. And we, we talked about this last time, how simple the gospel message is. You remember the story in Scripture in Acts, I think chapter 16 or 17, where Paul and Silas are in jail and there's an earthquake and, and the, all the jail doors open and they don't the, the, the prisoners don't leave. They stay there and the jailer runs in. He knows his life is going to be over if all the prisoners are gone. And he sees Paul and Silas, and he's heard them singing. He's, he's seen their testimony. And the first thing he says to them is, well, not why didn't you leave. The first thing he says is, what must I do to be saved? He knew that there was, he was not right with God, and he said that. And Jesus said simply, or Paul, and Paul said simply, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And so it's, it's a very simple message. Just believe in, in Jesus. But it's not a belief like the demons believe in Jesus and shudder about it, it's a belief that goes into the, the lordship of your life. It's when, G, when Christ said, repent and believe in the gospel, those weren't separate things Jesus was telling you to do. You don't repent, and that's one thing, then you believe. It's all part of this. They're all synonyms. They're all part of the package that we, we repent. That means we, we know, we confess that we have sinned against God, and we ask him to help us turn away from that sin and then turn toward God and toward Christ. And we believe in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that he paid the penalty that we deserve to pay, the death penalty on the cross for our sins. And we believe he rose from the dead, the dead satisfying God's justice and wrath over our sins. So Christ took the punishment that we deserved. And so there's this repentance and belief in who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross, and that's how one becomes born again. It's a test of faith. God is testing us by saying, will you believe me at my word about how you can be right with me? And to believe what God has revealed, that Jesus Christ is his son, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross for our sin, he rose miraculously from the dead, and he's coming again someday to rule and reign. When you believe that, when Christ is the Lord, you get off the throne of your own life and Christ takes lordship there, then you, the Bible says you'll be born again. And that's, the, again, the prerequisite for having a Christian worldview. Yeah, that's all music to my ears, David. And that Philippian jailer, I would say, had a very clarifying moment. What must I do to be saved? That was 
exactly where he was at at the time. It was fantastic. That, that's the question that we all should be asking. Like that is the most important question. Not, I mean, it's important who you marry, where you work, and where you live, and how you raise your kids. Those are really important things. But the most important question is, what must I do to be saved? The implication there, Bill, is that we're lost, and we are lost. We we are born. The Bible says in Ephesians two, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, and we're alienated from God. So what must I do to be saved from God's wrath? And that's why he sent his son, Jesus, to to give us the opportunity to be saved from the wrath of God. Yeah, this is the very reason I love doing this show. And I love having you on. We get right to the point <laughs> every the time gospel. you come on, which I appreciate, David. Yeah, it's let's talk about the second step, which is sanctification. Um, and what does that have to do with the formation of a Christian worldview? Yeah, so... I can't remember if we mentioned this last time, but salvation has really three tenses. Tenses. There's a past, and there's a present, and a future. So oftentimes we speak in terms of salvation as the, the point of conversion or being born again, as we've just been discussing. But in Scripture, salvation has this, this idea that there's, there's tenses to it. So the, the first tense is in the past, justification. So that's been, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. That's what must I do to be saved from, from the wrath of God, right? That's justifica- justification where God declares us righteous because of what Christ did in our behalf. That's a one point in time moment where we're justified. We repent and believe in the, in the, in the gospel. God justifies us. He declares us righteous, even though we're not righteous, by the way, but he declares us righteous because he can, because Christ took all of our sin past, present, and future. What great news that is. And he accounts it to Christ and takes Christ's perfect righteousness and accounts it to us. I mean, what an incredible swap. That's the uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 passage. God made Christ, who knew no sin, he's sinless, to become sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That, that's justification. That's what happened in the past in our salvation. But then there's the rest of our lives. Once you're saved, justified, there's this second tense, which is sanctification. And this is you are being saved from the power of sin. And this doesn't mean you're going to be sinless or, or perfect or you're going to, you know, Christ is going to be the Lord of your life in, in the first day as much as he's going to be way down the road, many years down the road. But now you're on the road that leads to eternal life. And this is where God is making us, forming in us to become more like his son. He's setting us apart for his service. That's sanctification. And then finally, the third tense of salvation is glorification. This is happens, what happens after the believer dies someday, that you will be saved from the presence of sin. And that, that awaits. That's the hope of the believer. That's great news as well. So sanctification, to get back to your question, is the process that God works inside of us to make us holy, to set us apart for his service. So Philippians 2, 12 and 13, well-known passage, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The salvation he's talking about here isn't justification, not the first tense, not the past tense. It's the present tense. It's the sanctification. It could say, work out your sanctification with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to David Wheaton, and we're continuing our series on embracing a Christian worldview. 
We're going to take a little short break, but when I come back, I want to ask David more about sanctification. It's kind of a big word, and I want to make sure we all understand it. I'm just wondering if sanctification simply means do this and don't do that. I don't know if it's that simple or if it's something we got to talk about some more. You can learn more about David at, at thechristianworldview.org. We'll take a short break and be right back. When you sponsor a child in need, you change their life. Your child learns that God loves them more than they can imagine and that he has special plans for their life. Your child gets help with school and is taught leadership, life skills, and how to overcome poverty and succeed. Your child gets nutritious food and vital medical care that often saves lives. You might not be able to change the world, but for one child, you can change theirs. Meet the kids. Find your child at MyFaithRadio.com. I'm back with David Wheaton. So nice that we can go through a series called Embracing a Christian Worldview. And that's really forming a Christian worldview. We all need to do that. And I'm so glad we can discuss this. We, uh, right before break, started talking about sanctification. And I'm wondering, David, is sanctification really simple? Is it do this, don't do that? I'm curious. Yeah, it's often thought that way, Bill, that sanctification or how do we become more holy? How do we become more like Christ? That's the goal of the Christian life. We're commanded to become more like Christ. It's often thought of as, well, do these things, but don't do those things. Sort of a checkbox, legalism, works-based, just you know, try harder, do this, don't do that. That's not what sanctification is or how, it's, how it comes in our life. That can lead to if you're just if it's just you trying to sanctify yourself, it's going to lead to like, well, I'm holier than thou and I'm better than you because I'm more sanctified than you. Um, like justification, like that past tense of salvation, God is the one who initiates in works self sanctification in us. But we all we also must cooperate in that. We must there's work for us to do as well. So back to that passage we were just talking about in Philippians, it's instructive, chapter two work out your own salvation or sanctification with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you see this here. It's like, well, is, are they contradicting themselves here? Work out your own salvation, but is God who's working in you? Well, which one is it? Is God who doing the work or is it us? Well, it's really both. It's the believer's work here in our sanctification is to focus on and follow Christ. And as we draw near to him and are influenced by him, he works out sanctification in our lives. So it's really both and. And in the passage that Paul writes to the Colossian church, in Colossians chapter 3, I think is really helpful to understand sanctification. It says, and just notice how many times the name of Christ is mentioned in this just three verses, four times. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, in other words, if you're born again, Keep seeking the things above. This is ongoing action on the believer's part. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
verse 4, the fourth mention of Christ, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And, and so I think this is the really powerful, helpful passage about sanctification. It's really ultimately about becoming more like Jesus Christ. That's why this passage mentions him four times. It's knowing more about him, Bill. It's thinking like him. It's conforming our lives to his. It's drawing near to him and loving him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as we do that, there will be things we do and don't do, as we talked about at the beginning of this question, but doing or not doing is not the means of becoming like him, of being sanctified. So when you think and live like Christ, and that, that's the point here of sanctification, when you think and live like him, when you are sanctified, here we are, you will have a Christian worldview, because ultimately, who has the greatest Christian worldview? Christ himself. That is what the Christian worldview is, is the worldview of Christ. Mm-hmm. And when we embrace a Christian worldview, uh, that's a wonderful thing, but more than anything, David, and I think you just made this point so well, is we want to become more like mm -hmm. Christ. And when we become more like Christ, we will have a fuller understanding of a Christian worldview. Yeah. And can I just mention where that, that, that idea or that charge comes from in Scripture to become like Christ that's often used? Well, it comes directly from Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. So there is the purpose of the Christian life. Yes, we must be saved, as we talked about. That's the prerequisite for having a Christian worldview or being, being honoring and glorifying and pleasing to God is to be saved. And then to be sanctified is to become like Christ. So it's not just about kind of folding our hands, closing our eyes, or isolating ourselves away from the world and all temptation. Uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I mean, if there was a perfect passage on forming a Christian worldview or becoming like Christ, this is it. I mean, if you could know what the will of God is on everything, you would be in the perfect position to live it out. And so that's what that passage is urging us to do. Don't be conformed to the world's flawed perspective and values, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So there's there's things for us to do here. There's, quote, work for us to do. It's, it's active. It's not passive. It's not sitting with your hands folded. It's presenting your body as a living and holy sacrifice. We don't own us or rule over us. We want God to rule over us. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't love the things of the world. Number three, be transformed by the renewing of your mind as you take in scripture, as you take in sound preaching. Uh, that transforms us. That sanctifies us. And that's what God uses is to, to transform us to become more like his son. Mm. David, when you think of the error of the world's way, it's every day you get up and you see it. And if you don't replace that error uh, mm. with God's truth, which is the infallible, uh, with God's word, which is the inf infallible source of, of his truth, we won't be transformed. That's the only way we can become transformed. That That's absolutely the case. And I've just been thinking about this recently, Bill. The world has nothing to offer. It's got things that we, we think are valuable, uh, whether a, a great career or making money or 
um, it, just all the the temptations of the flesh, the, the the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That's all that's in the world. Um, it looks tempting. There's allurement to it. If there wasn't allurement to it, if it wasn't temporarily gratifying, no one would go after it, of course. So there is temporal gratification of the things of the world. But the, the, the real deep and rich joy and fulfillment and satisfaction comes from drawing near to Christ. In Christ is where we get our greatest joy in life. That's how God designed us to have our greatest joy in knowing and following him. And that's not dependent on our circumstances, our financial situation at all, which is, which is great news. It's not just for a small club. Uh, it's really open to anyone who would repent and believe in the gospel and then draw near to Christ in his word in a local church and be sanctified. Um, that's where true joy comes from in life. Yeah, and if you study the book of Romans, especially chapters 12 through 16, it really gives you, uh, Paul encourages us how to live a godly life and how to live in the, in the light of the saving power of the gospel. Very much. And so, you know, and I, I think the local church is a, a big part of this, by the way, too. I always like to emphasize that we're not called to be kind of Lone Ranger Christians. Yes, I read the word, accurately handle the word of truth yourself. But being a member of a sound Bible preaching church, hearing sound preaching is the way God really intended for his word to be communicated. And so that's really, we're going to get into this next time, being surrounded. That's another way we form a Christian worldview. This is a key part to it because there's so much poor and incomplete or downright errant teaching today. Um, false teachers and their false teachings. They deceive countless numbers of people. So the command here is that's why Christ wants, or God wants us to be part of a sound local church where the, the word is preachfully, is faithfully taught. So when, when we're a part of that, then that's to, that, that transforms us. Like that passage in Romans chapter 12 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're transformed by being in a sound local church with other believers Iron sharpening iron, hearing good preaching, worshiping together, reading the word ourselves, maybe hearing messages during the week on our phone. So much, so many resources out there to hear messages from really good preachers, faithful preachers. That's the key, though. You have to get someone who accurately uh, teaches the word of truth. And doing all those things leads to our sanctification and at the same time really develops our Christian worldview. And David, if I can just go back to your days as a professional tennis player, you will attest to the fact that there are no shortcuts. There's really no magical formula for renewing your mind. It's got to be done constantly and daily and intentionally. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Bill. It's it's really, I heard a pastor say one time, you know, how does sanctification, how does growth happen in your Christian life? It's really just the day-by-day, week-by-week process of growth. It's like an oak tree. It takes a long time, but just make progress every day. And just through the what's called the ordinary means of grace, the ordinary means of God's grace is just reading the word and, and prayer, fellowshipping with other believers, being a part of a sound local church, hearing good preaching, um, sharing your, your faith with others when you have opportunity, just these basic things of the Christian faith. Matter of fact, I'll just give you a tennis story if you want to hear it. I don't know if you have time. Um, we but I remember 30 seconds. Okay. I remember playing at Wimbledon one time and my brother was coaching me and the main thing he put on a little card before I played was just focus on the fundamentals, get your ball toss in the right spot. Because he knew that if you can't execute the fundamentals under pressure, 
then all the supplemental things are going to be irrelevant. It's the same thing in our Christian lives as well. That's awesome. David, thank you so much for once again being on the show, and I look forward to part nine coming up next. Really enjoying it as well, Bill. Thank you. Thank you. You bet. David Wheaton has been my guest. The series has been called the series is called Embracing a Christian Worldview. We're gonna take a break and we come back. Desiring God author Scott Hubbard's up next. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Hey. It's the afternoon show. All right, I really hope this doesn't get personal today for me because I think about the word sluggard and uh, I don't really like the word sluggard. It's really someone who is habitually lazy or inactive. I don't think that's me, uh, but there's also the kind of person that doesn't take personal responsibility for his or her life. And the word sluggard is used 14 times in the book of Proverbs. We're going to talk about that today with Scott Hubbard. He is an author, and you can read him at DesiringGod.org for Lessons Against Laziness. That's our topic today. Scott, welcome back. Good to be here, Bill. Yeah. So, of course, I felt conviction reading this, although it's an outstanding uh, article, so I appreciate you uh, sharing what Proverbs teaches us about laziness. Yeah, quite a bit, actually. (laughs) I know. I know. I'm bracing myself. Well, I wrote it with myself mainly in mind. I know a lot about the sluggard, not only because I I like the book of Proverbs and the sluggard in particular is one of the most interesting characters, sometimes humorous, sometimes tragic, but I also know him personally. Well, I know know that about you because I know you write from what you know, and I know that you have this humility about you that says, you know, there's a little of that in me. And as I read that, I thought, mm-hmm, there's a little bit of that in me too. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of the sluggard in everybody. Uh, you know, the calls to hard work uh, throughout the Bible, but in the New Testament in particular, to do whatever we do in the name of the Lord Jesus, to work heartily, to be steadfast and immovable in our labor in the Lord. Those are given to everybody yeah. because everybody on one level or another struggles to <laughs> Struggles with laziness. Struggles just, to not be movable. Scott, wouldn't it just be easier if we avoided studying the topic of being a sluggard? Wouldn't that just <laughs> solve things and we wouldn't have to feel any conviction? Well, you know, like we talk about in the article, it might be easier in the short term. Yeah. It might make everything harder a little bit after that. I, I agree. Better it be hard and right than hard and wrong, right? Yeah, that's right. And hard and wrong is usually a lot harder. <laughs> it's <end>. always harder. <laughs> it's always harder. So... How do we identify the sluggard? And, and let's, let's just talk about the framework of it. Is it, uh, is it me occasionally? Is it me all the time? <laughs> what is it? Well, I think for most of the people, you know, there are going to be a spectrum of folks who hear this, and some of them are going to be just the Lord has given them the grace of diligence. And among their various besetting sins, sluggishness or laziness is not one of the main ones, even if they still struggle with threads of it in their lives. On the other hand, there's going to be people who it just, when they read about this, <laughs> about the sluggard, it just is so uncomfortable because it seems to match them head on. Yeah. And then for the bulk of us, we're going to be here in the middle where we know the value, we know the pleasure of labor underneath yes. the fear of the Lord. Of we course. want that kind of life. And yet we find ourselves often, even against our better intentions, pulled back into the realm of of the sluggard. And so these various patterns, sometimes overt, often subtle, of walking in laziness. 
Yeah. I know that we treat work as an act of worship to God. Yeah. So as followers of Christ, we want to be productive. We want to uh, have our, our work be meaningful. So we have no problem doing that. But right. then when you have so much loaded on your plate, you f- sometimes look at other activity and go, eh, maybe tomorrow. Yep. Yeah. That's definitely one of the sluggard's favorite phrases, and, <laughs> maybe tomorrow. <laughs> and some of that is okay, isn't it? Just to say maybe tomorrow, because I've had a long, long, long day. Yeah. We're going to have to know ourselves here yes. well, aren't we? Yes, and we are. have other people know us well, because there is a kind of, you know, there's another side of this, which is the workaholic. Mm-hmm. So uh, Proverbs gets into that. Some, mostly other places in scripture, get into that side of the issue. There's two ditches on, you know, pretty much any issue that you look at. There's some people who work so hard, they drive themselves into the dust, and they need a different kind of encouragement. But my own sense, as I think about my own heart and the people I know, and just even the kind of world we live in, where it is easier than ever to kind of twiddle your day away in, dis- in little distractions and in little compromises when mm-hmm. it comes to work, it seems like probably most of us need to be reminded and warned about the ways the sluggard can take control of us. That is so spot on, uh, Scott Hubbard. Because if you were to say, how would that manifest itself? Well, you might look on your browser and go, wow, I have 32 open websites right now. Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm wasting some time. Yeah. I checked this, then I looked at that, <laughs> then I checked this, then I looked yeah. this up, and right. none of it's that productive. Yeah, you might check your browser history. You I, might check yeah. your phone screen time and yeah. just see how many times did I open my screen that I pick up my phone within the working day. You know, I know you could do that. Yeah. There Have you are, heard how yeah. often people look at their phones throughout it's, the day? It's a it's lot. It's a big number. It's a big number. And I, I, I laughed when I heard it and I thought yeah. that's not possible. But then I, <laughs> yeah. then I go, every time you glance at it, that's considered a pickup. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it does feel like today, you know, I often think of this quote from a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones, the pastor, British pastor. Back in the 70s, maybe it was even 60s, he was just talking about how life is so hard today. It feels like we are, we each of us is fighting for our lives to be master and to take control of our own lives. And and he wrote that way before smartphone. That was just the age of TV and newspaper. Like if you think today... Oh my word, we are in a fight more than ever to actually just focus on the work that the Lord has set before us to do. Mm -hmm. All right, Scott Hubbard, let's look at uh, some things that we can learn and what are some of the four lessons against laziness. Let's start with a little adds up. Yeah, so the genesis of this article came from this passage in Proverbs 24, which is one of the more lengthy ones on the sluggard in Proverbs where the author says that he passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. So the idea here is that by looking at the various tendencies that the sluggard has, we actually learn by contrast about what a life of labor under the fear of the Lord looks like. And one of the sluggard's favorite things to say is a little. This appears twice in the book of Proverbs, this Mm -hmm. very statement, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. That's his mantra. That's his, you know, kind of what he mumbles when he's half asleep. (laughs) Just a little bit. Just Just a little little bit. And the problem is that a little is a little, but when a little is added to a thousand other littles, then it becomes not so little. I know. It gets very big. Yeah, it it gets big. And so... One of the things the book of Proverbs is teaching us in this portrait of the sluggard is that how we handle little, little temptations, little decisions, 
a little crossroads where we either need to deny ourselves and work hard or indulge the sluggard, that is actually not such a little thing over time, Mm -hmm. how we handle those moments. Mm -hmm. That is such a great point. Scott Hubbard Hubbard is my guest. We're uh, chatting about his article at DesiringGod.org called Get Behind Me, Sluggard, Four Lessons Against Laziness. And Solomon points uh, us to one of God's littlest creatures as evidence. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Yeah. Who say more about that? (laughs) So while the sluggard is saying, you know, oh, just a little of this, just a little of this, there's this little creature who's also operating by the principle of little, but in the opposite direction. Uh A little work, a little labor, a little (laughs) self-denial. And what happens? The tiny, this tiny, tiny creature, just by picking up a bit of leaf, a speck of dirt, you know, in cooperation with other ants, builds (laughs) builds this anthill, like accomplishes something magnificent, especially relative to its size. And so the sluggard, part of the sluggard's problem is that he's not learning the lesson of the ant, which is a life of labor very often consists of taking moment by moment and saying, I'm going to do this little bit. I'm going to do that little bit. Not going to think about trying to do my whole day or my whole week, but I'm going to entrust this little moment to the Lord and I'm going to work hard by his strength. Mm -hmm. Scott, what happens when you uh, trip trying to run too fast? Right, because the temptation in these moments, you you might realize like, oh, wow, little compromises over time are actually really destructive. Mm -hmm. And the response can be, oh, I'm going to do a lot. I'm going to do a bunch. I'm going to finish 10 projects this week. Uh, No, 20 projects this week. (laughs) I'm going to... And you can just think of all the various resolves that we do. Uh, I'm, I'm going to work out every day, Monday to Friday for an hour. I'm going to, and <laughs> the problem with that is that very often real change, even the change that the spirit brings into our lives, sometimes it's very disruptive and dramatic and immediate. Oftentimes it's little by little mm-hmm. where he takes us through those little moments. And instead of compromising, he gives us the strength to walk in obedience. So rather than this sprint away from the sluggard's house, it's very often more of a steady walk. Yeah. So that's how you consider how things work best for you. Instead yeah. of starting with a out of the block sprint, you go, I'm going to start my 10 mile walk. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm going to aim more sense. for a little consistently yeah, like by that. the strength God gives than a lot right now by probably the motivation of a temporary resolve. Yeah, I like that. All right, let's talk about um, neglect grows weeds. So one of the things that the author mentions when he walks by the field of the sluggard is he says, behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. And one of the things that we might think when we look at what the sluggard is doing is that each individual instance, even some of them built together, they're not that harmful. I mean, what? The sluggard is is enjoying another snooze cycle in his morning rest. He's taking a, a third or a fourth helping at lunch. And he might say to himself, uh, like, part of the allure of the sluggard is that the littles never seem like that big of a deal. And they definitely don't seem like they're harming other people or doing significant damage. Wow. If anything, maybe it's just a little, yeah, I, I squandered away a little time. But the principle here is that even if the sluggard wasn't actively planting thorns in his yard, he might as well have been by not working. Mm-hmm. It's That kind of passivity is actually a kind of active destruction by allowing the forces of entropy to take control rather than by going out to take dominion. 
And so neglect, rather than being just a neutral, harmless thing, actually is in itself harmful. Yeah. It grows weeds. Yeah. There's so many rationales we have, isn't there? This is just yeah. a little, little <laughs> tiny, don't worry, there's no big deal, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't, you know, no one, no one even needs to know, no one's going to feel this. And it's true, maybe in the short term, the effect of the sluggard is really just an internal thing that our own souls, we are tutoring our own souls in the school of sloth. And we are teaching ourselves to treat hard work a little bit more reluctantly. We are training ourselves to indulge the sluggard a little more quickly. More likely than not, though, even in the short term, certainly in the long term, it's going to come out for other people to see. Our work's going to be half done and sloppy, probably. There are going to be broken commitments. We're going to have some abandoned responsibilities that other people are going to have to pick up for us. So indulging the sluggard is actually, a, yeah, those are the kinds of weeds that can come from our neglect. Mm -hmm. Scott, it says in Proverbs, the home of the lazy man and the destroyer end up looking the same. The only difference is speed. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. So Proverbs 18.9 says, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. So that's a surprising comparison. On the one hand, you have someone who's slack in his work, that is a lazy person, someone who cuts corners, someone who allows a lot of excuses to uh, that he fritters his day away. And then on the other side, you have someone who's actually actively destroying, taking a hammer, toppling some walls, punching some holes in <laughs> buildings. And Proverbs is saying, actually, those two are brothers. They're not huh. that different than mm -hmm. we think. Because what happens when we are slack in our work? Over time, we may not punch holes in the wall, but holes form by our neglect by our lack of engagement. So you can even just think in terms of everyday examples, like if I don't disciple my children today, then I'm simply welcoming the world to do so. Mm -hmm. I may not be asking the world to do so, but functionally I'm inviting them to do so you by sure my are. neglect. Yeah. If I don't initiate this hard conversation, I jeopardize the relationship. It's not simply I put it on pause for a little bit, but uh, each passing day, if there's a conversation that needs to happen, actually eats away at it. Mm -hmm. Come up with other examples too. Yeah. Scott Hubbard is my guest and he has no desire to make you feel bad today. Isn't that <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'm, I'm speaking to myself and I know like part of this, part of the burden comes from my own sense, my own experience. Oh, life is good when I'm not indulging the sluggard. Yeah, like it's, point. it's good. It feels good to lay your head down, knowing, being able to look back on your day, knowing God helped me to work hard today. You can learn more about him at desiringgod.org. His article is called Get Behind Me Sluggard for Lessons About Laziness. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Bill Arnold, host of the Afternoon Show. Do you uh, still believe God is good? I think oftentimes when you share Christ with people, they, they want to ask two questions. Is God good and can God be trusted? So do you believe he cares about the condition of you and your life and your soul? And do you think he still answers prayer? Well, I promise Susie Larson is going to help you wake up to the goodness of God and point you towards healing and wholeness. If you're in for an adventure of a lifetime and to be used by God, just text the word good to 877-933-2484 to get encouraging texts, prayers, and devotions from our own Susie right to your phone. Connecting Faith to Life, Faith Radio. 
so glad to have Scott Hubbard right here with me in the studio. I always enjoy when Scott comes in. I always learn so much. I'm inspired. His writing is superb. Please go to desiringgod.org and check out his writing. He does it so well. His article today that we're talking about is called Get Behind Me Sluggard for Lessons Against Laziness. I think um, he said that he's writing this autobiographically. And I'm connecting with it as well because I've got a little sluggard in me. I hate to admit it, but there, I just did. <laughs> yep. I'm proud of you. Yeah, thank you, Scott. Thank you very much. All right, let's talk about how our desires often deceive us. Proverbs puts this one bluntly. Proverbs twenty-one twenty-five: The desire of the sluggard kills him. <laughs> Which might sound like a little bit of exaggeration, hyperbole. Uh, probably only a little bit. In that age, especially compared to our own, your livelihood really did depend on hard work, on the ability to get out there and plant seeds, sow the fields, uh, get some calluses on your hands, yeah. work when you didn't feel like it. So it's, it's true in a way that laziness could be lethal in that day, uh, especially if you didn't have people who would cover for you. Not so lethal today, but the desire of the sluggard, even if it doesn't kill us, it at least takes away so much from us when it, and it might not feel like it. In fact, in the moment, it will never almost feel like it, that the desire of the sluggard in the moment, the desire of the sluggard feels so friendly, mm-hmm. feels so promising, yeah. feels so sure that this is going to lead to good says, you know, uh, don't, don't go out and mow the lawn right now. It looks like rain anyway. It tells us not to speak of Jesus today, not in this conversation, to wait, do it later, later. Uh, not, no, don't in- initiate that hard conversation right now, you know, maybe tomorrow, that mm, kind of thing. Yeah. Don't and wreck in, the vibe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, by talking about Jesus, that could disrupt the, the <laughs> evening. Yeah, right? yeah, right. Yeah. And in the moment, that just feels like the height of wisdom to our little sluggard inside oh. of us. <laughs> I know uh, it does. And the desire of the sluggard kills him. Yeah. Because what it does, even if it doesn't actually take our lives, uh, unlikely that it would, it takes almost everything else. It, it takes the joy of working hard under the Lord. It takes the peace of relationships that are well kept and maintained. It takes the reward that God gives when he hands us talents to steward well. So even though in the moment, maybe for a few minutes, maybe for a few hours, the sluggard enjoys this easier life. After that, every part of life becomes more painful. The weeds grow taller and what we realize we should have done an hour ago, a day ago, a week ago, a month ago comes back to bite. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Thanks for that convicting <laughs> word. You know, I've shaken hands of, with farmers before, people that are you know, in their 70s, 80s, that spent their whole life on a farm. Yeah. And there's nothing like shaking that hand. <laughs> no, there's there not. There's nothing like it. There's not. No. And if, you know, there, yeah, it would probably be good for more of us to know more farmers who, who just know that if you anchor your plans for the day in your short-term desires, then uh, life isn't going to go well. Yeah. And the there's a reason that the scriptures use the imagery of farming so often, you know, the cause and effects of farming, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. There's a world of information and analogy from the life of agriculture. And one of them is, uh, yeah, what you sow today is what you reap tomorrow. And therefore, anchor your desires somewhere sturdier 
than the pleasures of sleep and food and entertainment, mm-hmm. which will not provide for you tomorrow. Yeah. All right, Scott, let's get to the next uh, the, the, the next lesson that we can learn about laziness. Scott Hubbard is my guest, and the, and the next one is hard work flows from the heart. Yeah, so a lot of the lessons, well, the three lessons that we've covered so far, a little adds up, neglect grows weeds, our desires often deceive us. They're all really, you can get there with just a little bit of common sense. You don't need special revelation in order to see these kinds of things. Yeah. But that's fitting. One of the descriptions of the sluggard is that he's a man lacking sense, <laughs> Proverbs 24. <laughs> so he needs common sense, you know, and the spirit uses common sense. But ultimately, the book of Proverbs is going to lead us to a deeper place, which is the heart. Hard work flows from the heart. So Proverbs 26 places the sluggard not simply within the realm of common sense, but in the sphere of life that is before God himself. It says that the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. And that word wise, when we're reading Proverbs, to just key us back to the beginning chapters where we learn that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what we're learning here and seeing that the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly is that the sluggard does not have, does not share that fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. Ultimately, his issue, why he's so dominated by distraction, why he procrastinates so often, why he sleeps in and arrives late, is because he does not have the wisdom that comes from an all-of-life submission to the fear of God. God does not occupy a significant place in his consciousness, in his daily waking sense of things, not nearly so big as uh, the cupboard and the couch, These, these matters of sensory pleasure. Those are bigger in the sluggard's mind than God himself is and than what God himself says. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, hard work is this matter of the heart, of what's going on down beneath what we do and say into what we feel and believe. Mm -hmm. In your article, you used a word which I really like, Scott, and it's the word allegiance. Yeah. And you said that laziness reveals a lack of allegiance. I love that word allegiance because I think it's such... A great word when you come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, place your faith, give him your allegiance. Yep, that's right. Surrender and submit. Pledge your allegiance to King Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Amen. Yeah, which is this all of life. I'm going to submit not only my devotions to him, but my daily work. I'm going to give him not only my Sunday mornings, but my Monday mornings. I'm going to treat the little responsibilities of the calling that God has given me Monday to Friday, nine to five, or whenever our working hours are. And I'm going to treat these as a matter of allegiance to Jesus because they are. Yeah, it's really good. So how do we do this working hard with a good attitude? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I know a lot of hardworking people that are, that are kind of angry a lot. Mm. They're, they're not, they're not, they're not working with a, a sense of th- this is an act of worship to God. It's I've got bills to pay. I've got blah. I've got all kinds of stress and anxiety. Yeah. yeah. So I want to work hard. But how do you encourage people to also have this Christ-like attitude in the midst of the hard work? Yeah. Well, I do think that there's there's the kind of outside the moment kinds of things, which is just a daily acquaintance, a daily fellowship with the Lord Jesus that shapes and seasons all of our attitudes. And then there's the actual 
uh, day by day, moment by moment, what happens in the working day. And I don't know a way of doing this in my own work apart from having a kind of recurring um, recourse, recurring prayer life to Jesus, to, to God the Father throughout my working day, where I entrust not only the day, you know, during morning devotions to him, but then at 9 a.m. or whenever you start your work day, entrust the next eight hours to him as well. And then throughout the day in these little times of prayer to entrust this task to him, entrust the afternoon to him. And then after the working day is done and heading home and not wanting to carry it with me into the home and have it affect my family relationships, being able to entrust that to him and trust that the, the one who gave me strength to do however much work I did today is also able to provide for me when I'm not working. And so I think it comes from this, you know, as we bring more of our work under allegiance to Jesus, we also realize more of the promises that he makes to us for our work, which is to strengthen us, to help us, to give us the energy and the grace that we need, and then also to give us grace to sleep at night, to set it, set it aside. You know, he gives to his beloved sleep. And so not only does he call us to submit all of our work to him, but he also gives us all of his word for working moments that feel frustrating, hard, every day. Mm -hmm. Scott, you just, just described a focused man that isn't easily distracted. Yeah. I mean, really, yeah. I mean, the way you described that is be was beautiful. You get your quiet time in the morning, you, you offer every meeting and conversation you're going to have to the Lord and every project and your, your work day of eight hours, what you're going to do to serve him. And then you, you wipe your feet on the mat and go home so you don't bring your problems home. Yeah. Beautiful. It's beautiful. I think, yeah, I think a lot of us are tempted to take those little moments that could be used for prayer and entrusting the next hour or whatever to God. And it, it, we, we turn to the distraction and say, yes, you know, we do. And we lose some of the attitude that God might give to us by even for 30 seconds to a minute. I know. Going to Cause him. it's the little thing, Scott Hubbard. It's the that's little right. thing you keep talking about. That's right. Yeah. That's going to haunt me, <laughs> but in a good way. Yeah. It's a good reminder. Yeah. Not to let those little things uh, squeak away, uh, but to use those little moments to also continually refocus and put your mind on what God has for you to do that day. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right. So thank you very much once again. I always uh, I learn so much when you come on. Oh, it's great to be here, Bill. You are a great conversationalist, too. Well, you're fun to thanks talk for to. asking the questions. <laughs> no, no, you're fun to talk to. And I, I like your writing style, and I, I always... Learn when you come on, so thank you very much. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you. All right. Scott Hubbard has been my guest. Scott is an editor for Desiring God. He's a pastor at All People's Church and a graduate of Bethlehem College and Seminary. You can go learn more about that article at DesiringGod.org. The article, again, is called Get Behind Me, Sluggard, Four Lessons Against Laziness. We will take a short break and be back with more in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.